Hello, and welcome to In Brackets. This episode features an interview with Michael Meyer, Pitt professor and author of The Last Days of Old Beijing, In Manchuria, and The Road to Sleeping Dragon. His former student, Molly Bain, sits down with Michael to talk about structure, teaching, and fitting in time to write. Here's Michael Meyer and Molly Bain. Okay. Hi, I'm Molly Bain, here with writer and Pitt professor Michael Meyer. Michael is the author of three books, The Last Days of Old Beijing, In Manchuria, and most recently, The Road to Sleeping Dragon. Michael, thanks for joining me here today. Happy to be here, Molly. Thank you. All right. So you often refer to your three books, uh, all of which take place in China, mm-hmm. as your China trilogy. Mm-hmm. I, I think I've heard them as your China triptych, too. Yes. Um, First, when did you know you wanted to write a book about Chinese history and your own time in China? And secondly, how did you know after Sleeping Dragon that you were done? Those are great questions, Molly. I know it's time to write a book when the book I want to read doesn't exist. And so someone once helpfully explained to me that when you walk into a library or a bookstore and you see that shelf... When you're writing a book, you're advancing that shelf one inch to the right. You're adding something to the continuum of knowledge that other writers have have produced before you. Um, And so in my case, you know, working as a journalist for many years in China, where I had first gone as a Peace Corps volunteer and had already seen a different side of the country where I was living out in the countryside, I realized that, you know, the stories I was covering as a journalist were fine, but they were quite ephemeral. And I often felt like a vampire kind of flapping in and taking a bite of someone, grabbing a quote, and then flapping away, never to be seen again. And I realized that the stories I was most interested in were the ones that were, you know, people's lives were changing over time. The environment, the landscape was changing over time. So I wanted to watch that. And when you're writing a book, you get to be more of a toothless vampire. You know, you you land, you kind of gum on somebody a little bit, and then you come back and see them again, and they see what you're writing about them. Um, so that's how I started those books. And you know that your last question was, you know, how did I know I was done? There's a lot of stuff going on in the world. And there's a lot of books I want to read that aren't on the shelf right now. And so that's how I know I'm done. I might come back to it in the future. You know, China's an enormous part of my life and my family's life. But for now, there's other topics I want to explore. Did you know that while you were writing? Um, while you were <laughs> that's writing a good question. I really did. I did. It felt like a great amount of closure. And also, I think... My writing has changed since I've become a father in that I feel more of an urgency to leave a trail of breadcrumbs for my son to say, well, here's what mom and dad were up to before you arrived. And also, you know, and not to be so um, bold as to compare myself to George Orwell, but, you know, Orwell wrote Such Such Were the Joys, his boarding school memoir, and he wrote 1984 when he was a widower and had a young child, you know, at his feet, as it were. And Orwell knew that he wasn't going to be around very long. And so he wanted to leave these messages to his son, sort of handbooks about how to live your life and what to look out for. I mean, I feel that way with China, with my son, that the things that I loved and experienced there are vanishing. And I want him to have a sort of compass. So when he goes and explores the country, he has some landmarks to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And would you say that your current project is also somewhat inspired by the relationship with your son? I would, definitely. Um, I named my son Benjamin after Benjamin Franklin. And I discovered my uh, project I'm working on, Benjamin Franklin, through China, in that 
I was invited to um, the the state visit for President Hu Jintao and was in D.C. and was at the State Department luncheon as a guest of our former Secretary of State, Mrs. Clinton. And, you know, there was Barbara Streisand and Colin Powell and all these muckmucks roaming around and Yo-Yo Ma and his cello, the poor guy. Um, and I felt very out of place. And I went into an ante room and I leaned on a table. And from behind me, a Marine guard said, don't lean on that. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, why? And he said, that's the table at which Benjamin Franklin signed the Treaty of Paris. And I had forgotten oh. he had done that. And so as one does when one's uncomfortable at luncheons and, and dinner parties, I started <laughs> reading the Wikipedia page for Benjamin Franklin and just started finding more and more things about him that I didn't know. And I started pulling those threads, which is kind of what writers do anyway. I mean, I'm sure you've been through this where you start clicking the links and you get deeper and deeper and you figure out, wow, I didn't know this about this subject. I'm entranced by it. And for some reason, there's no book about it. Um, you know, I've heard that uh, writers say that each book they've written has taught them a unique set of lessons about their craft. Um, what would you say are some of the lessons each book has taught you? Each of your <laughs> books has taught you. Don't do it again. <laughs> um, you know, the last days of old Beijing, I was living in Beijing's oldest neighborhood. I was in a shared courtyard with several families. We had no heat. We had no toilet. I was volunteering at the local elementary school. And I really was, you know, subsumed into daily life of the Hutong. And which is a, the alleyways that, that lattice old Beijing, sort of like Venice's canals does its landscape. Um, and that book taught me that often it's actually easier to write about strangers than it is to write about family. You know, there's a level of acceptance and a writer sort of becomes a confessor in that regard where different people are telling you things that they wouldn't tell one another and you sort of become the fulcrum for this story as you get these different sides assembled. For the second book, in Manchuria, I moved to a rice farming village near the North Korean border. And in that case, you know, I learned it's awfully difficult to write about family <laughs> because that's my wife's extended family there. I was in that village and it was very, very difficult for me to get a sort of sense of distance and to let people know that I wasn't there as a relative. I was there as a public historian, as it were, and a journalist researching this. Um, and with the third book, you know, the, the Road to Sleeping Dragon, which is looking back on how I first arrived in China, I really all of a sudden came to appreciate that these experiences that we have when we're younger or even, you know, in the present day, even if you're not publishing those pieces, it's worth writing everything down because there may come a time later in your life when you can make use of them. And I've, I tell my students here at Pitt this, that I find that I'm still going back to notebooks and notes that I took as an undergraduate 25 years ago, and I'm still interested in those same subjects. You know, I think it's a lot like we love the music that we loved when we were 13 and 14. When you're in really intense experiences like living abroad or in a new relationship or starting a new job, that advice of, you know, keeping a journal, I always kind of scoffed at. But writing letters can be a way of keeping a journal, you know, taking notes for yourself, um, archiving everything in photographs. I'm glad I had all of that. You know, and so even if I would say to anybody listening, you know, even if you feel you're not ready to write about something and share it with the public, write it anyway for yourself. Never wait for permission to write something down. You don't need to go ahead from an editor to record something. You might come around to it later. Um, are there any recent pieces of writings that you have come across from 20 years ago now that are that are informing your writing now it is because you know my family i'm the first person in my family to go to college and my family is is blue collar through and through my mom owns a small construction company my grandfather worked at ford's largest plant in detroit um and 
I, I look back now at letters that my mom and I were exchanging when I was an undergraduate where she was telling me, you know, she hoped her most fervent hope for me was that I wouldn't become a blue collar worker like the rest of the family, that my education really mattered. And I think for a long time when I was, you know, probably until my late 20s, after I'd been in China for a while, to be honest, I was a little bit embarrassed and a little bit ashamed of my family's background, you know, and it's only now looking back that at her letters and my experience then that I start to understand the mentality that students who I'm following now at vocational education schools and classes, I sort of can empathize. I can't fully be in their shoes, but I, I know that feeling of kind of what I'm doing doesn't matter. You know, I should instead be going to law school or becoming a doctor or becoming a humanities major or something else. Um, so that's very helpful to look back on those. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that her letters, your letters with her mm -hmm. have a role in in, 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 in uh, Sleeping Dragon. In Sleeping Dragon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's a funny thing. I I think audience matters a lot when you're writing. And, you know, if you're writing something for The New York Times op ed page versus writing it for The Economist, let's say, you have a different audience there. Um my mom has always been my audience for my books because if I can get my mom to care about Chinese people, she's never, my mom still calls it Red China. She's never been. Um, if I can get her to care about these people, then I'm doing a good job. I'm keeping her turning the page, right? Mm -hmm. And she, after she read The Last Days of Old Beijing, she said, my mom's very smart in her own way. She can read blueprints and price jobs in ways that I can't do, right? But she looked at it, she read it and she put it down and she said, you know, honey, I don't get this. Is it a, a textbook or is it a novel? And that's actually a really hmm. good definition of what creative nonfiction is, right? Um, but she was happy to see those letters recycled into The Road to Sleeping Dragon. You know, she's a little embarrassed, of course. She feels like, oh, I don't sound so smart because I don't know anything about China. But I, that was helpful because I didn't know anything about China either. And my ideal audience for that book is people who don't know anything about China. And now it's being used in American high schools um, in geography and history classes. And that is exactly the audience for mm. which I intended it. So I'm mm -hmm. really happy about that. Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah. Um, and also in Sleeping Dragon, you have letters excerpted, as I recall, from students as well. Mm -hmm. And it seems like in each of your books, some part of your teaching as a practice mm. and as a vocation is a part of the narrative. Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about how <laughs> your teaching informs your writing? You know, I never think of them. I never think of them as separate. Um, it's very difficult. You know, I mentioned the vampire analogy earlier. It's very difficult to be a journalist and walk up to somebody, for me anyway, and say, "Hello, can, what do you think about U.S.-China relations?" Because their answer is so spontaneous, and frankly, it might not be the best thought they have ever had. They might walk away from you. I get this a lot where they email you later. Like what I should have said was, "When you're a teacher, however, you see people at their most natural state. You know what I mean, and you see them." when they're being naughty, when they're being frustrated, when they're being proud, when they're achieving things, and you meet their parents, and you see other people, you know, in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s teaching them. And so from a writing perspective, it's sort of a way to show people I'm more than just a cipher. You know, I'm not a recorder who's there to, to take their words down and nothing else. I'm giving something back. But it's also a way to become a gray wolf and sort of lurk in the, the middle distance, right? And people stop seeing you. You know, when I'm first starting something, it's always, oh, you're, you know, Heroic Eastern Plum Blossom, my Chinese name. You're Plum Blossom, the, the reporter. And after two weeks, it's, oh, you're Teacher Plum Blossom, you know, and they sort of get bored of you and ignore you, which is what you want as a writer when you're doing immersive research. You don't want to be noticed. 
So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about structure because, mm. you know, I think about structure a lot. <laughs> uh, and we've all heard as writers the maxim that chrono chronology is our best friend. Mm -hmm. But for Last Days of Old Beijing and in Manchuria, um, chronology isn't the only organizing tool you use. Mm -hmm. So how did you go about making sense of your research and making a coherent <laughs> narrative for each of your books? Oh, that's a great question. And I'm laughing because I flash on me sobbing, you know, in a hotel room trying to write this stuff. I collect, you know, massive amounts of notes and photographs and paraphernalia and menus and those sort of newspaper clippings. And it sort of becomes a tell, you know, like the what archaeologists refer to a, as a trash heap. Um, and then I sift through it and try to figure out what's the structure here. For Beijing and Manchuria, I had chronology with like the passage of the school year or the pa changing of the seasons on the farm. But you're right. I'm trying to also bring in history. And so for me, it was really difficult to figure out how do I fold in 800 years of history in Beijing's case, 500 years of history in, in Northeast China, Manchuria's case, how do I fold that into the narrative? And really, I wish I had a simple answer. Um, the answer is I put myself in the reader's shoes and I think, what does she need to know right now to keep turning the page? What's going to help her understand this story better? And then they sort of coalesce. you know. So for Beijing, I came up with the idea of potted history chapters, where you have four really pull-out chapters that don't even need to be in the book. Um, and my inspiration for that was looking back at Grapes of Wrath, because Steinbeck does these intercorollary chapters that you could skip. And it's funny, in the Chinese version of Beijing, um, those chapters are shaded gray on the pages. So when you look at the book's spine, you see white pages, which is the school narrative, gray pages, which is the history. And looking at Kindle versions, those history pages are actually the ones that are dog-eared most because they're used in urban planning classes, which is a hmm. I was unexpected, uh, not expecting that. For Manchuria, you know, it was more, how do I tell this region's history, not just a city's history? And what I struck upon is um, I kept jotting, you know, you, you doodle when you're writing, and I kept coming up with timelines and dotted lines um, and trying to connect different events. And that's when I realized, oh, these look like train tracks. And I could just take a train to each of these cities where an event happened. And I could stitch the narrative together with some movement. Hmm. So that book, you know, toggles between I'm on the farm, I'm in the school, and then I get on a train and go discover the history and kind of walk hmm. the reader through it. Honestly, I don't know if either of these approaches are that successful, but it's something I struggle with. And I'm doing it right now because I'm writing a story that's set in 1790, 1890, and 1990 with Benjamin Franklin. And the way I'm doing this is I'm setting very strict limits on myself, like only 70 pages for each section. Because otherwise, you know, you'll just start doing that information dump of, oh, I found all this great stuff, reader, here. Blah. But she's not going to keep turning the page if you're not structuring in a way. Yeah. 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 And and would you say that you would do anything differently with, um, with old days? <laughs> always. Or, or You'd always do something different. Um, as far as structure of those books, no, I wouldn't. I think I would do there's a there's a funny disconnect here. I really like um, British writing and British nonfiction in particular. And in British nonfiction, and I'm speaking here of like Rachel Cusk's memoirs or Jeff Dyer's essays, um, or Helen MacDonald even in H's for Hawk, um, they don't reveal so much of themselves as a character. The the subject is the character in many ways. Whereas American memoir, if you think again of Cheryl Strayed's Wild or you think of Mary Carr, that, that I is very much a character. And I think that my disconnect was, I didn't understand this because I was living abroad and I wrote these books in London, um, that American readers want a memoirist or a, the I to be more of a character. And I felt that 
in my context with China, my story is so less interesting than the people's mm. stories I'm chronicling. But that's the one thing I would go back on. And you, know, you go through drafts of books and you're on draft seven, and then the publisher will say, we need to know a little bit about you. And on draft seven, you cram something in. And I look back at those graphs and wince a little bit of like, ah, if only I had my external readers and more editing that I could have fleshed those out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But again, if this is my biggest regret about my books, I'm in good stead. Yeah, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it makes me think about Moby Dick, which is similar. <laughs> I think. Don't we, we all? We should all like always be thinking of Moby maybe, Dick. Maybe yeah. similar to Grapes of Wrath, in which there are these sort of like little nonfiction vignettes yes. in this larger story, and you really can remove them. And Ishmael's yeah. not really a character. Yeah. He's really just the eye, and he kind of observes. And there's no way he observes all the things he says he observes. But again, it's funny. I just taught that book to undergraduates. I teach it every year. And that was a complaint. They, they, they loved it. They, they went through it. They loved those set pieces about knots and harpoons and whales. But they kept saying, like, I wish I knew who Ishmael was. What's he look like? You know, like, what did he do before he got on the ship? Where did he go to school? You know, they yeah. wanted those those little biographical details. Melville, of course, could care less. You know, yeah. he and wants to tell you about the whale, right? McDonald and Dyer, too. Yeah. I mean, we don't know what they look like. No. And 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 so they're not a character, but their voices are so distinct and strong. And it's really yeah. the the sort of that, that, that voice that is so entrancing. I just read another fantastic book by Anna Funder called uh, Stasiland, where it's a, she's in... She's an Australian TV reporter who ends up in Berlin in the 1990s after the fall of the wall. And she starts pulling that thread and starts figuring, I want to collect stories of people who are affected by the Stasi. She's barely a character. She says she's hungover in the beginning of the book. She says she's curious, but we don't learn. Well, how did you fund all this? Do you have family? You know, what's going on? Um, and it doesn't matter, frankly, because, again, she's reporting on the East Germans. But that was a book by an Australian published first in the U.K., and not here. And I think here you'd have to have the full on reader. Here's who I am. And here's why you should like me or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to talk about your teaching for a moment. Mm. Uh, in your graduate seminars, you often have your students get out into libraries yes. and bookstores and, and try to imagine their books resting on those shelves. Yes. You briefly mentioned this earlier in the interview. So what do you hope that exercise illuminates for us emerging <laughs> writers? And also, what are we still missing? So listen, when you walk into a bookstore or a library, I want everybody listening to just realize that when you look at those thousands of books on display, if those schmucks can do it, so can you. All of those people you're seeing at and those covers you're picking up and idly browsing and setting down, that's three years of someone's blood, sweat, and tears and suffering spouse or partner um, and financial ruin, you know, in many cases. So I think it's good to see like, oh, there's a community here. And I, if they, these people went through it, then what am I complaining about? I should be doing it too. Um, the other thing I want people to see is I want you to pick up those acknowledgments, you know, look, flip to the back of the book, look at the acknowledgments. Who's the agent the person is thanking? What um, fellowships did he or she earn? Where did they go to school? Often you'll find they did not get an MFA. They did not go to journalism school. They're writing because they have a story to tell and they have to get it out of them. So I want it to be encouraging, but I also want students to start realizing when you take your pages and put them out to an agent and then onto a publisher, you're transforming from writing into a commodity. And that's a big leap. And a lot of writers and frankly, a lot of creative people have a hard time managing that leap of realizing, oh, well, now we have to sell this the way you would market Tied laundry detergent in some ways, right? With a flashy package and a, and a feel-good narration behind it. Um, 
So you asked, what are we missing? What do you mean by that? What are we missing? Who's we, yeah, Molly? Yeah, I mean, as, as your students, mm. as your former students, what, what, what after this exercise, and you, you hear your students' <laughs> what you reflections, yeah. what, are you, what are you still hoping? What do you want to grab them by the shoulders and make them see? One of the things that you do that's really yeah. cool in this exercise is you not only have us dissect um, the acknowledgments page, but you also have us really look at the Library of Congress mm -hmm. filings. Those keywords, Which sure. I think is really interesting, too, to sort of think about the intersections that your book is attempting to yeah. hold. And this is that transformation that sort of has to take place. If you're writing a story about your mom, which is a, to a common topic you know, you see in workshop, and it's a good topic to write, it's good to mine our families for stories. But for a graduate student or even an undergraduate, that story is just about mom or about me in many cases. And to make that leap instead and say, ooh, this could, this could fall under immigration. This could fall under you know, keep going, right? Um, any ethnic history, let's say. It could go into a geography. Is it a regional book, you know, that you migrated to Reno, Nevada when no one was doing that? Whatever it's going to be, you start enlarging it. And that's helpful when you start approaching agents and publishers about here's why you should care. You know, it's, it's difficult to explain this to someone who hasn't seen it, but when you're in an agent, publisher, or editor's office, her email is going ping, 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 ping. You know, those little dings we hear with our Outlook? That's submissions they're getting, and they need to look at something and be like, you know, here's why you should care, and here's why you should put your Brooklyn mortgage on the line for me, essentially, because people lose their jobs if they give you too much in advance and the book doesn't sell. So you need to, it helps. I want people to get in the, the librarian's shoes, the agent's shoes, the publisher's shoes as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Be so, kind to your readers, in other words. Help and, them see the story you're trying to tell. Right, right. Yeah. And do you think there is something that your students are routinely missing still <laughs> after, after you see their reflections? I still, oh, that's a really good question, Molly. I, what I would like, honestly, is I'd like those reflections to continue to me unbidden. Every two weeks, a student say, hey, you know, Michael, I went back to the library. I found another book that fits me better. Sometimes, you know, when you're a teacher, things go in one ear and out the other, and people are busy and they have jobs, and you kind of don't know what sticks so, Molly, have you gone back to the library and done that shelf assignment since it was given to you? Know, you know, I have. But do you yeah. browse? Yeah. Yeah, I do, br I do yeah. browse in a very, very different way. Um, and if, if there's a new book that comes out that I think, oh, this book is doing something interesting mm. uh, that, I, that I want to somehow emulate or speak to, mm -hmm. um, I always look at acknowledgments. I always look at Library Good. of Con Congress filings. Good. That makes me happy. Mm -hmm. But also, I would tell people, I was told as a grad student, like, if someone's writing a book that's similar to your topic, be happy about it. Buy the book or check it out. Photocopy the back. Look at their notes. Those are breadcrumbs. Just because somebody went to the library, you know, Library of Congress or went to the National Archives and pulled a box folder out about somebody, she didn't see the same things you would see if you went and did that. You know, and your angle on the story will use that information in a different way. Maybe you'll quote from the same letter, but it'll be a different portion of the letter that the previous writer missed. So I'm always happy about that, too. You know, it's... Uh, I think sometimes people feel like, oh, well, someone already did a book about my topic. Well, there's lots of room on that shelf. Again, you're just going to advance it one inch to the right. Keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. yeah. So since you just brought up uh, agents and mm. agencies, um, this past spring, your interview with your agent, Georges Brachard, was published in the Paris Review. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful conversation about his life, including his escape from the Holocaust and immigration to the U.S., where he opened his own literary, literary agency and went on to represent writers like... Ellie Wiesel, John Ashbery, and Tracy Kidder. Mm -hmm. um, he's led an incredible life, and he also sounds like a wonderful collaborator and mentor in the writing process. Yes. Could you describe what he has taught you about <laughs> writing? 
I have always taken my view of publishing as um, I want it to be fun. And I don't mean that in a like, yay, I'm having a great time. I'm so happy fun. I mean, I always want to be a sponge and learn as much as I can. And so I, you know, George and I um, had a friendship from the first time we started working together. You have that spark. And he introduced me to publishers and I chose my publisher based on that same feeling. Because when you have people like that in your life, it's very easy to say, well, I want to choose the cover art. I want to choose the font. Um, and it's very easy for them to say, look, we like you. We're really going to edit this and really you know, really make, make you make it better and not give you a pass. Um, and so with George, you know, he reads everything that I turn in. He um, edits my proposals. My proposals are only 15 pages. They're not these big 100-page, you know, uh, they're letters to a friend, as it were. Um, he matches me with the right people. And then when I do the actual manuscript, you know, he line edits it with a pencil. You know, he's 94 years old now and he still does this. And this is someone, again, who brought to America. His first American sale was Waiting for Godot. You know, he was Samuel Beckett's agent and Jean-Paul Sartre's and on and on and on. And you can look at this interview. I think he's represented four Nobel laureates. Um, and so to have that attention from him, of course, is wonderful. But it's also big picture education. You know, I didn't want to do, I wasn't liking the subtitle that I had for In Manchuria. And he said, well, I know you're naming that book after In Patagonia. And I said, well, yeah, it's a kind of an homage to Chatwin. And he said, well, when I sold In Patagonia for Chatwin, you know, he demanded that there would be no subtitle. And so do you want to go that route? Or do you think nowadays we need one and can we work on one together? You know, so he's always giving me these sort of yo-yoing back and forth from his past experiences to the present day. And when you have that sort of big picture view on the industry, you don't feel, frankly, like you're getting shortchanged. Do you know what I mean? There's that feeling. It's a weird feeling with writers in that we pay agents to represent us, but often it feels like we're working for the agents. Did you sell it yet? You know, I mean, can you can you help me? Um, and I don't have that with him. Yeah, it's a really warm relationship. And I, I knock on wood that he lives, you know, another decade. I, I don't think I don't see him slowing down anytime soon. But yeah. Yeah. And in, in that interview, there's this beautiful moment where he's where he's saying when you ask him about the line editing and you yeah. say, it's so rare that it, that it seems that an agent will go to that kind of depth mm-hmm. on a manuscript that they're working on and an author they're representing. And he's and he sort of reflects that. Yeah. You know, I want I want the author to hear it from me first, that that yes. chapter is boring. Yes. And that's a wonderful lesson he's taught me too. He writes little X's in the margin. So when his eyes start to glaze over, that's when he he puts the red flag up for the writer about, well, maybe you want to rework this because he's started losing my attention. And he's a kind reader as well. So when he says that, it, he means it. The other thing I really like about George, you know, is that I say like, why do you put up with it? Writers complain all the time. Publishers never want to give enough money. You're always toggling between the two. And he said, one thing that I've always found so fascinating is that writers know they're writers. He said, imagine, you know, you go to work every day knowing before you even start that no one wants to buy what you write. Um, and he said, but it's fascinating that they, they do it because they have a story to tell. They have some, and they have to say something different every time. He said, anybody could say, you know, there's a vase in the corner of the room. But he said, if you look at, uh, you take 20 writers, writers will all come up with a different way of saying it. Sometimes they won't even refer to the vase and they'll still get the idea across. And I love that, you know, that he has that um, passion and um, concern and care for his writers. And I hope everybody has an agent that does the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about your daily writing practice then. 
what does it look like? Mm. And how do you balance your writing time with both teaching, the business side of writing, mm-hmm. you know, communicating with George, communicating yeah. Being with a editors, dad. Yeah. being a dad. Yeah. How do you, how, what does it look like? How do you balance it? <laughs> so uh, I'm a first thing in the morning person. So I rise uh, usually 5.30 or 6, and I have my desk in my office. It's facing out a large window off into greenery, you know, trees over the backyard. Um, And so I sit at the desk. The door is closed. The phone is not in the room. The wireless is turned off the computer, and I write. And I take this example from John Steinbeck, who has a wonderful book called Journal of a Novel, in which you can read how every morning he would begin his writing practice when he was doing East of Eden, and before that, Grapes of Wrath, where he would write a letter to a friend. And he had that notion from Emerson, who said, there's no such thing as writer's block, just write a letter to a friend. And so Steinbeck has a notebook where on the left-hand page of the margin, uh, left-hand page, he would, he would write a letter, um, usually to his agent, saying, here's what I'm worried about today, here's how I'm feeling, I'm feeling logy, you know, I'm hungover, I didn't eat well, the kids are bothering me, whatever it is. And then on the right-hand page, he would start writing the, the, the draft of East of Eden, and he would stop after about 2,000 words. That would be two or three hours of intense work. I do the same thing. I write an email. I hit print. It's an email to myself. I hit print. I put it on the corner of my desk. I like watching that pile grow over time. You feel like you're accomplishing something. And then I face my manuscript, and I have my page set up to look just like a book page, you know, the margins, the spacing, everything, because I like to have a, a sense as I'm writing of, who's on stage, readers only want one or two characters at most on each page, is there something new on the page that they didn't learn previously? And is there something that's gonna make them turn the page? You know, I wanna keep going. When I'm done with that, I hit print, and then that's on the corner of my desk too, so I watch that pile grow. I don't look at it, it's all face down. Hmm. And then I'll get me to about eight o'clock. You know, that's a good two, two and a half hours, and then that gets me to getting my son ready for school. Um, and then I come home and the thing, you know, your subconscious, even if you walk out for a half hour to go to the bus stop and to run an errand or something, your subconscious is already solving things that you just you just did. So then I'll go back in and edit lightly over what I wrote. Maybe I'll write a little bit more. But honestly, I'm kind of done. I try to be done by noon. Um, and then I go for a run, which is my treat, you know, because mm-hmm. I got the work done. And then it's right into housework and <laughs> preparing dinner and you know getting ready for school bus pickup at 3:30 which I love. So I've structured my life in that I want to be a full-time dad. Um, so the schoolwork and the writing has to be done by 3:30 for school pickup. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but this email that you write to yes. yourself. What 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 are the what are the contents of this email? Everything, you know, yeah, it's what I'm what I want to work on that day, what problem I want to solve on the page, things I'm frustrated about in life or in writing. Um, something I'm afraid of. It's really helpful. You know, it's funny now that I'm a parent of a small child, I'm finding these sort of self, these soothing exercises you do with kids are really useful for writers too. Like, what are you afraid of? Say it out loud. What's stopping you from asking that question? What are you worried is going to happen if you do? Da da da. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do that to myself and I try to remember, I'm, you know, I, I run races, I run marathons. And so I'm used to now, I think writing a book is very similar in that you can't always be thinking about what's on the shelf, you know, because it takes a long time for a book to get appear on the shelf. But you do need to be thinking about these little steps you're taking every day. And there's a saying in, uh, you know, a marathon training that the best time to plant a tree is 25 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today. 
And so you have to take that step to do that little work to move you forward. Otherwise, if you're up in your head or if you're editing what you've already written, you're not moving forward. You're not going back, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if there are days when you skip it, just like if you skip training for running, don't go back and try to make up for it. Just pick up as soon as you can the next day because we get sick and you have to be out of town sometimes. And you know, I'm not a zealot. I don't do this seven days a week. I try to do it five days a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then my subconscious gets to work on it the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, you know, I dream about it. Um, Hemingway said, stop when you know what tomorrow's sentence will be. So I do that too in my writing where I stop at a place where I know, great, tomorrow when I come back, I know where I'm going to pick up. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so when you come back to pick up, it's always, you don't, you don't re no read what you no, read yesterday. And there's no staring yeah. at the cursor, that horrible tyranny of that flashing cursor. Uh, no, I know exactly what I'm starting with. Yeah. And again, I know this having gone through these, you know, you, you get you get reps at this. I know it's all going to be rewritten anyway. When you write your first chapter, by the time you're done with your draft, let's say it usually takes me three or four months. By the time I'm done with my draft, I know I'm going to go back and rewrite the first 50 pages of the book. So it doesn't do me any good to spend three weeks trying to perfect that first chapter because your voice changes. You make discoveries as you're writing that you're going to go back and tease for the reader in the beginning anyway. Mm -hmm. So the thing is you have to generate the pages, and then you can go back and fine-tune it. And the editing is really the harder work than the typing, honestly. The first draft is the easiest. The editing is the hardest because that's when you're you're really thinking about how do I make the reader um, understand what's happening and make her care. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, I take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're getting there. Uh, well, thank you so much, Michael, for spending this time talking with me today. Thanks, Molly. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to In Brackets, the literary podcast of Hot Metal Bridge. I'm your producer, Avery Keatley. Production assistance from Tyler McCloskey. Thank you to Michael Meyer and Molly Bain for their time. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>